brothers and sisters. We're not looking at new first principles, we're looking at first principles and new. And I, I hope this will be helpful. I hope, first of all, that all of you can see the blackboard, because that's going to be essential. And those of you who've got tape recorders, if you don't, if you can't write as well as tape, then you've had it. <laughs> so, uh, if there are any literate uh, Americans here, then otherwise, there are one or two Canadians who can help you. <laughs> well, now, some of the older brethren and sisters may not be aware that younger brethren and sisters, in fact, young people generally, have more problems with the first principles than their elders. And I think there are two reasons for this. I think the first is the manner of 20th century education, which, in a way, has a false basis, at least one of its bases is false, and that is that you question everything, and that makes you question God. And I don't think there is any justification for doing that, so that's one side. But the second thing is that um, older brothers and sisters just took things more for granted in some ways because they were glad to be released from what the churches around had taught them and to find the truth. Whereas the, the younger people, having been brought up in, a, um, in that atmosphere, now begin to explore the question and to try to find out a reason for things. Now what I, I hope to do during these four talks, is to show one thing, and that is that there is a single basis for the whole of the truth. That it's a simple, straightforward, understandable matter. And that having got hold of it, you can then begin to hook everything onto it. And we'll spend quite a time in the first three chapters of Genesis. I'm not going to go into the scientific side of Genesis, that's another matter, and it's uh, not for now. Um, Genesis, where it touches science, is accurate. But above all, it's accurate in its theological, its truth teaching. And this is what it, the message that's coming through. So if you have your Bibles, then Genesis chapter 1. created, but in the beginning, before any creation took place, God. And there's no explanation for that at all. If an explanation had been given, you wouldn't have understood it. I wouldn't have understood it. This is no earth, no people, nothing but God. And that for an infinite time. And that's beyond our understanding. Mortal minds, earth-born minds would have been unable to comprehend but in the beginning, God. And that's what's taken up in the first chapter of John. In the beginning was the Word. And much of the first chapter of John uh, has links with the age in which John lived. Its major links are with this first chapter of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And if we're to ask how, then again, if God had told us, we wouldn't understand. Our present way of understanding is, is in, a, in a way to try to explain things by a number of scientific means of explanation. But all the sciences put together lack something. And no science could find it out either, because it's impossible. It, it's not in science to find it. Namely, the why for the creation of things. And also the feeling of God in creating things are not find-outable just by any of the scientific means of exploration. 
And so if God had given us a scientific explanation, it wouldn't have been complete. And whatever other explanation he had given us, it would never have been complete. The completion of it comes really as we go through the rest of Scripture and see how God tells us what he was about when he created things in the beginning. But there is one thing about the how. And this comes out in various parts of Scripture. Psalm 33, verse 6, without turning it up. Make a note of it. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. And that's how. And in that, of course, science would stop short. It might know what happened when God spoke. But it can't take the step back and analyze God. And so scientific explanations, or any other kind of explanation, must fall short. Because there's one part of this that is beyond human analysis, and that's God himself. But it was by his word. Now make a note of it very carefully, because it, it's easily missed in the first chapter of Genesis. I think, and I've said this before repeatedly when I've come over here, that one of the things that we miss in our reading of Scripture is the simplest teaching. Doesn't matter what it is that God's teaching us, the simplest teaching is often missed. Now, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. It's taken up in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. You remember, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which do appear. So you can't start with the things that are seen and discover that from which they were made. It's impossible. The, the, the invisible things of God are made manifest by the visible things of God, as Romans chapter 1 says, even his eternal power and Godhead. That's Romans 1 and uh, verse 20. Second Peter 3, same lesson. By the word of the Lord, you remember, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. So there it is. It's by the word of God. Now, would you have known that without having had Psalm 33, Hebrews 11, 3, Romans 1, 20, and 2 Peter 3, verse 5. Would you have known that it was by the word of the law? Well, the first chapter of Genesis tells you that. It's as clear as daylight in the first chapter of Genesis. You know, all the arguments that come about John chapter 1 only come because people haven't read Genesis 1. All the involvement, the deep theological involvement in John chapter 1 emerges in our human minds because we start with John chapter 1 and haven't read Genesis. At least haven't read it carefully enough. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And God said, by the word of the Lord. And God said, doesn't say he did. He said. Now this, is, this ought to be understood by us. It's there in the New Testament. I say unto thee, arise. And he arose. He said and it happened. What's in the New Testament is there in the first chapter of Genesis. Now just have a careful look. It's in verse 6, and God said, and in verse 9, and God said, and in verse 11, and in verse 14, in verse 20, in verse 24, and God said. That's how it happened, by the word of the Lord. So we start then with God and his word, his word before it's uttered, and when it's uttered. The word was with God, and the word was God. In the beginning, God, and his word, unspoken. But before he spoke... All this was fully planned in the mind of God. That's clear. Otherwise he couldn't speak. He wouldn't have known what would have happened when he uttered. But he did know. And when he uttered, he was bringing forth into visible form that which was there in the mind of God invisibly before. And this first chapter of Genesis makes this mighty clear. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way. Proverbs chapter 8, make a note of it, and if you haven't read it very carefully, then read it when you get home. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 22. It's a description of wisdom, but it's wisdom, as it were, as a partner of God. It's the, the, one of the great parallels of the first chapter of John, this wisdom of God, the mastermind of God. It's not separable from him. And what it means is that God didn't speak out of chaos. He spoke out of infinite wisdom, out of perfect order. 
And out of that, he then produced that which is revealed step by step in these verses of the first chapter of Genesis. Now, without going into each of the day's work, let's have a look at verse 26, because this is where, really, we get to grips with our subject. Now, the interesting thing about this is it's slightly differently framed than the preceding and God said in this first chapter of Genesis. And God said, let us make man in our image. It didn't happen straight away. This was, as it were, either, these are the two possibilities, a reflection of God himself and its revealing because of the importance of this. This is the most important thing that God had done in creating the world. We can't say it's the most important thing that he had ever done. Because one thing the first chapter of Genesis doesn't tell us, unless it's telling us that here, is that there were angels present. But they're there in the 38th chapter of Job. And make a note of that. All the morning stars sang together. The sons of God shouted for joy when God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. They were there. So their origin and all that lies behind them is not revealed here in the first chapter of Genesis. But this is the most important thing for this creation of God, this earth, which you now are setting out in order with all its divine arrangements. In fact, they were all centered upon the creature he was now to produce. So this is either a reflection in the mind of God himself. Let us make man in our image. This is the royal we, perhaps. The editor of the Christadelphian sometimes writes in this form, doesn't he? We. And he means Alfred Nichols. But it's just, uh, and there's only one of him, I'm glad to say. Uh, he'd have enough trouble if he, there were more than one, I'm sure. Uh, but Alfred uses that, we. It's a method of expression. The Queen writes in this form when she occasionally writes. She writes, we. And she's not speaking of herself and Philip, she's speaking of herself. Elizabeth, our I. But it could mean something else. Because the word that's used here, as we all know, is a word that is plural for God. It's the word, a word that ends in I am for Mary. Elohim, which is plural, means more than one. Like cherubim means more than one. It is sometimes used entirely of God and of God only. It's sometimes used about angels. It's sometimes used about people on earth, about judges. In John chapter 10, when Jesus says, if he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and that word is Elohim. It's out of Psalm 82. It's a plural word. So this was either the angels themselves, and if, if this is the angels, then obviously they're working at the behest of God, or it's the reflexive use of words, where God is, as it were, now, because he's come to the height of his creation, is now allowing us to step back into his mind for a moment. With the light, he said, let there be light. In fact, uh, the Hebrew is, is quicker than that, so one understands. It's light, be. And there was light. Just like that. When it comes to creating man, he said, now, let us make man. And maybe it does take us back into the mind of God for this very reason, that what he's now going to do is to produce something above all else that is able to have communication with the mind of God. The trees don't. They express his mind. They obey those principles he's laid down, which we call law. But man is able, because God gives him free will, to reflect on God. Let's make man in our image. We say, in our image and our likeness. Well, what's that? Our image and our likeness. Does it mean this sort of physical form? Is it that? Has God got physical form? And if we think that over long enough, and you don't have to think it over long enough because you don't go very far before you run into problems with it. That doesn't say there isn't form there. But, it, but we are now trespassing on something. God expresses himself in physical form. And he has form of that, there isn't any doubt, I feel in my own mind. 
And the angels are an expression of that, and they look, as it were, man-like, or men look like angels. But in the image and mind of God, or likeness of God, is more than what there may be outwardly, it's inwardly. Now, if you'd just like to make a note of this, um, leave your marker in Genesis and come to Psalm 8, because we went there, didn't we? And now there's just an interesting development. Now, this Psalm 8, which I'm not going to go through in detail, I doubt whether we should do that this weekend, but it's, it's a marvelous psalm because it goes back to Genesis 1.26. That's where its foundation is. It's quoting Genesis 1.26. It goes on to Hebrews chapter 1, chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 15.28, Ephesians chapter 1, and so on. Place after place, this marvelous psalm comes up right out of Genesis chapter 1. It's prophetic as well as, as, well as retrospective, looking back. But there... Now, verse 4, what is man without mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. A little lower than God. Revised version. Revised standard, perhaps, says God, I'm not sure. Margin again, Hebrew, it says, Elohim. You've made him a little lower than the Elohim, right? How? In what respect? I know it's taken up later on in Hebrews and says he was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. That's true. But that, that's stating a condition of man after man has sinned. In Genesis 1, where we are now, we're before man sinned, right? How was man a little lower than the angels before he sinned? It's interesting. Just reflect on it as to how he was a little lower than the angels. You don't have to go far before you can put your finger on the basis. And it has to do, not quite with mortality, but, well, Luke chapter 20. Let's have a look. Luke chapter 20. Here is the discussion between the Sadducees and Jesus about the resurrection of the dead. The woman and her seven husbands and the dilemma in which she would be on the morning of the resurrection. And of course, we discover that the dilemma was not the woman's, nor Christ's, but the Sadducees. They didn't know their Bibles. But, Verse 34. And Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels. Being the children of the resurrection. So equality with the angels is a future state. So one can say, now, out of the first chapter of Genesis, that that equality couldn't have been there in the beginning. But hold on and just follow it through. If they had immortality in the beginning, by definition you can't lose it. Otherwise it isn't immortality. Therefore they hadn't got it. Even before they sinned, they were not immortal. Now this helps us in this definition of what man was before before he sinned. And equality is that which is promised in the future, a little lower than the angels. And so Adam was lower than the angels when he was made. Later he was lower still, because now dying thou shalt die. And Jesus, when he comes into existence, is brought in at that lower plane, there, made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, in order that he might suffer. So there it is. Uh, this, is, this is an interesting development of thought, this, ma this matter of the angels. And it's pretty clear, if only we'll hang on to our Bibles and go through each of the stages, the Bible fills out the information that we start to seek in Genesis and don't always find it. However, I mustn't linger too long on that first uh, part of Genesis because, um, well, there's so much more to it that we've got to talk about. First chapter of Genesis doesn't deal with the creation of Adam and Eve as such. I know it says they were created in the image of God. He was made. Male and female, they were made. 
But it's only when we come to the second chapter of Genesis that the, the story begins to unfold. Now, one of the interesting things about the second chapter of Genesis is the basic difference between the creation of man and of woman. And no explanation of the origin of man and woman is any good unless it makes absolutely plain that there was a difference in their creation. Uniquely different from anything else. Because Eve was made out of, out of Adam. You know, we say at the wedding service that these twain should be one flesh. But they're not. They're not one flesh. <coughs> not at all. They're still two different kinds of flesh. It's only when they have children that the children might re then reflect the oneness of the two. But the two are not one flesh. I know we, we think of it, well, they have an association, an intimacy that talks about one flesh. But it wasn't so for Adam and Eve. Eve was Adam's flesh. And his bone. So he could say, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, in a way that was never true of any other creature, never has been true of any other creature, except... Now let's have a look. Second chapter of Genesis. This is important now, verse 21. I don't think we spend enough time on these chapters, by the way. We know we sometimes do in looking at the... <coughs> scientific difficulties, but God revealed in these chapters a host of uh, pointers as to what he was doing later on. Verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And then, as an addition, not something that Adam said, this is a mosaic uh, comment, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife. It may even be a comment of God himself. But it was, it's quite clearly not one of Adam, because it's not something that Adam could have understood to say that. And they were naked, he and his wife, and we're not ashamed. The children of God will be like unto his own glorious body in the end. They will be out of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5. The wedding chapter. Although it's not about weddings, really. Verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband, as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the saviour of the body. That's interesting, isn't it? You just begin to reflect now on this. He owed her entire existence to God and to Adam. She had no existence apart from that. The church owes her entire existence to Christ and his Father. The Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In other words, entirely his own holiness. That's what she'll have in the end. It is God's work in the end. He says, I will present you faultless before the presence of his glory, with exceeding joy, Jude, right? Verse 13, I think. But then it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth even as the Lord of the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, 
For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And they wasn't talking about weddings at all, as I've commented once, I think, before to one or two of you. That was the aside that he was making. What he was really talking about was the marvelous relationship between Christ and his bride. Well, there it is. We are members of his body. We're taken from his side. By his deep sleep. So that he may say, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And this takes us right back to John chapter 6 and the other similar places, does it not? He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood, he it is that hath eternal life. He's the one who belongs to me. He's mine because he's got my flesh. He's got my blood, my life in him. And no other way. And so John, uh, sorry, yes, John in that sixth chapter, and Ephesians here in chapter five, and going back to Genesis, are all linked together. Now, that deep sleep, it's not only there in, in uh, Genesis, as you'll see in a moment. But come back to Genesis now. I'm sorry, we can only just touch every stone that you lift here has got treasures underneath it, every single one. And the only way, actually, is to just spend time looking. Well, you may think I'm digging sort of deep, but in fact, I'm just being extremely superficial in, in just treating these various places. You've only got to stop and discover all that there is. Well, we're in, John, in, in Genesis 2 now, and verse 7. The creation of man. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Alright? Perhaps if I just try to draw a little here then you, you might understand. Um, if you just think of this as being God just infinite in that direction and in this direction this is God. And then God makes the earth. Right? Uh, and then out of the earth he makes man. He doesn't do that. Didn't say he made him out of God. And he made him out of the earth. The first man was of the earth, earthy. That's where he came from. I know God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, but he's made out of the earth. God's teaching us something. Now this is before he's mortal. Dr. Thomas has a quite a, a difficult passage on this. In fact, when you read it, you think it's gibberish as a matter of fact. Um, it's extremely difficult to understand what he's getting at. But it's linked with this, really. So when man is first made, he's of the earth, earthly, and not of the eternal God. He's got to be made spirit by the life-giving spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ to have eternal life. That's where he is. Alright? That's a very simple drawing, isn't it? We could hardly be simpler. But uh, why didn't I draw him that way? Or that way. That would have been equally simple, wouldn't it? For man. I don't think you really objected when you saw him that way. You felt that was right, eh? The Lord God made man upright, but they thought out many inventions. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 or something. Actually, that is right. That is man. Just like that. And that's how he is when he's first made. Alright, now notice that the Lord God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. He does touch him and give him life. But he doesn't, he hasn't got, he gives him something. Right? Just gives it to him. It isn't that he's, he's God. He's made it lower than the angel. But he touches him and he's got life. And he becomes a living soul. He doesn't have a soul, he is a soul. And he's a living soul. He's not ever living like God certainly had nothing before him like the rest of us because none of us have memories before our birth but he hasn't got eternity stretched out before him either but there he is poised he's upright he's quite ready there's nothing about him now whereby he could feel that God had done him injustice he's created him 
He's given him life. All right? I want you to think about that because um, it just gets a bit more interesting as it goes on. Now I'll just have a look a little bit later in this chapter. And perhaps you haven't had your eyes open. I don't think you have, actually. Uh, I think about 5% of Christadelphians got their eyes open. Hey, well, well, you know, two and a half then. Um, maybe even less than that. You don't look at your Bible, I'll just ask you a question. Just test yourself. When was Eve told that she shouldn't eat of the tree? All right. Now, have we got two and a half percent who know? Or not? Well, you have to look very carefully. She wasn't. At least, it's not recorded that she was. Well, I know now you want to have a look and check up because you don't believe me. Well, that's all right. That's what it's all about. You've got to look very carefully. Well, let's have a look then. It now says in verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden and put man in the garden that he made in Eden. So he made man, then he made a garden for him. Not the other way around. Man actually saw the garden prepared by God. So he has an awareness of what God has done for him now. Right from the beginning. And verse 15, and the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Didn't have to work hard. Wasn't that he had to labor. There was nothing to labor about at all. He just had to dress and to keep it. And God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And there's no Eve there yet. All right? God doesn't say it to Eve. He says it to Adam. So Eve must have learned from Adam. She did learn, and she learned it precisely, because she recites it in the next chapter. But that's, that's how it came about, in the beginning. God spoke to man, and he hasn't made Eve yet, you can see in the chapter. Eve is made subsequently to this. Because God brings all the animals now, before Adam, into the garden, and everyone, he gives a name to it. Whatever name Adam gave to it, that was its name. But as he went through it, there was no correspondence between Adam and any other creature. By the way, that proves that there was no other creature on earth. Whatever difficulties one might have scientifically, let's get the thing straight, first of all, from the Bible record. There were no corresponding creatures to Adam on earth. I don't think there is a scientific difficulty, actually, but make it quite clear. If there had been, one would have suited Adam. But there wasn't. And so God now proceeds to make Eve. And we've read about the making of Eve and the relationship between them. Now, go back to that uh, 16th verse and the 17th verse. Was that a fair test? Was it a fair test to say to Adam, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now, was that a fair test? Perhaps you haven't sort of turned it over in your mind. Well, think about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Was the knowledge in the fruit? Or not? Right, someone thinks it was in the fruit. But somebody doesn't think it's in the fruit. Well, all right, might I just give you the assurance that I think you're both right. Uh, put it this way I think that before anything happens it's a tree of knowledge of good and evil there's a garden with all the trees in it there are two trees there's a tree of life it's not mentioned here God says you can eat of every tree but don't touch that one that's mine it wasn't on the edge of the garden either. Notice that? You, you read carefully, did you? It was in the midst of the garden. So wherever they went, wherever he went walking throughout the garden, he kept passing the tree. So now there was an awareness of God the whole time. 
Now remember Adam's upright. Not inclined to sin at all. Got no nothing that's pulling him over to disobey God. He had the opportunity every time he came near to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to say, thank God for the garden. He had the opportunity. God didn't plant the tree there just so that Adam was absolutely certain to fall into sin. As a tree with a perfectly balanced man, it was God's opportunity of reminding Adam all the time about himself and that he had not just an obligation but a love toward God to make, to make manifest to him. Don't touch it, said God. The one who had said in the beginning, let there be light, who spoken right through those days of creation, now spoke something that was equally powerful. And here's the point. Equally powerful. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. If you doubt that, then you can doubt all the other things about the creation. But Adam no doubt had the mark. Clear enough as to where his wife came from. Before he went to sleep, there was no wife. When he woke up, there she was. And God gave her to him. It must have been an experience, brethren and sisters. You know, marvelous. He had no friend on earth except the angel. And now he had somebody who could perfectly reflect himself. Not only that, there was a kinship between them of such a kind that she, she responded as he did. She was his counterpart. She wasn't a helpmate for him. The Bible doesn't say that. You haven't read carefully enough of that, but you think it says. It doesn't say she was a helpmate. She was a help. Meat for him. Suited to him. Not being a chattel at all. But she was designed, she was of the right kind to be of a help to Adam. So there then is this knowledge, this tree. So I think then, at the beginning, and whoever mentioned the fruit, the sister who mentioned the fruit, before the fruit was touched, there was a knowledge, which links up with saying that the knowledge wasn't in the fruit itself. As a matter of fact, of course, what happened was, whichever way it was, finally it was in the mind of Adam. That's where it was. In the mind of God, in the mind of Adam. And so there's the test. God tells his wife. Uh, Adam tells his wife. We know that from Genesis chapter 3. You got that? Just look carefully. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of the tree, every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. There's a slight addition there. Maybe it's an addition that Adam gave to his wife. The kind of thing that you would give to your child. I mean, the addition there is, neither shall you touch it. God didn't say that. But probably when Adam said to his wife, well, it's just as well not to touch it. You can't eat it without touching it. Don't start touching it. And by the way, that, that for young people, may I give it to you right away? That's the basis with temptation. And sin. Don't start touching. Lots of sins. Major sins come by, first of all, doing that. If you're at school, then you can get hold of drugs. You've got no trouble. Well, there's no, no point in getting hold of them and having a look at them. Don't touch it. You won't take it if you don't touch it. And so it is with wrong associations in fleshly things between the sexes. All right? Fair enough. Now, don't let's pretend that everybody is strong enough, because it's just untrue. We are not strong against temptation. We're all weak. That's what the Lord's Prayer says. Lead me not into temptation, and deliver me from evil. Both the things are there. Well, who's the fool who wants to go and lead himself into temptation? If the Lord's Prayer says that's the very thing you should pray not to do. You, don't, you shouldn't pray to be exposed to it and imagine that he's big enough 
physically or mentally, always to resist sin. It just isn't so. It's the, they're great men who get into that situation, who are thrust into it, don't seek it, and suddenly they are thrust right up against sin and escape it. That's a different matter. That's the second prayer. Deliver me from. But nobody surely goes right in and seeks to touch. And it's worth thinking it over. It's basic. We say it to our children, the fire burns. Don't touch it. And so, with this basic test of Eve, have you noticed what the test was about? Or did you miss the point? It's a simple, straightforward test, and it's always the test. Is the Bible true? That's it. Is God's word true? Have you notice what the serpent does? The serpent says, verse 1, Hath God said? The woman says, God hath said? And the serpent said? Just a question of whose word is right, that's all. As far as we're concerned, full stop when God has said. We don't need to ask all the other questions. We haven't got to enter into all the philosophical realms around it either. There's no need to. No need to question why God says. If God says, one man, one wife, God says, one man, one wife. He's going through it and thinking, well, the Russian system perhaps is better where you don't have, or the Israeli system in the kibbutzim is better where you don't have your own children. Neither of them is scriptural. And you don't have to ask. If God has said, he created it. And that's how it is. One thing about it, if God said it, it's right. And what's more, it's the happiest way to live in fulfillment, as we see in connection with Eve. Now, the next thing is this, that there's a great distinction between the temptation of Eve and the temptation of Adam. Have you noticed that? They didn't have the same sin. Not at all. The, the, the sin of Eve is quite different from the sin of Adam. And perhaps you haven't separated these two, but they're, they're set out as being quite different. First Timothy 2, just look at that. Now in 1 Timothy 2, Paul describes things. talking about the dress of women and women in the church and so on. I won't go into this, into hats and all the rest, but it's all linked up with it. Absolutely linked up. All goes right back to Genesis. Verse 11. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first born, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. Got that? When he sinned, he wasn't deceived. The woman was deceived. The serpent deceived the woman. She was beguiled. She entered into an argument and the serpent beat her. Not so with Adam. He entered into no argument whatsoever. There was, there was no argument with Adam at all. Adam didn't meet the serpent. Adam's temptation didn't come through the serpent, that was Eve. Second Corinthians, as the serpent beguiled Eve with his subtlety, not Adam. Interesting, isn't it? A real serpent and a real encounter with Eve. Adam's serpent was Eve. But there wasn't, a, there wasn't now a beguiling in the, in the sense that she argued, Adam went in with his eyes wide open. He followed his wife. That's all he did. And that's what it's all about in First Timothy 2. And when, when Paul here says the woman should learn in silence, he's not talking about her not, you know, joining in discussion or talking in the Bible class or teaching children. He's not talking about that at all. What he's saying is when it comes to an order as to how things are to be done and who is to make the pronouncement, then at that time, 
if the woman will remember and go back to the Garden of Eden, she won't give instructions to men. Not because her instruction might be better from a spiritual woman. What she has to remember, if she'll go back to the beginning, is, and God said this to, to Adam, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, not my, not my words, but your wife's words, and Eve, not God's words, but the serpent's words, it's a conflict of words. The word is with God, and the word was God, and if a man loses that word, he's without God, without hope in the world. He's got his own word, a dying word, a deceitful word. And that's what both Adam and Eve had through different reasons. Interesting, isn't it? You know, this, this arrangement here that Paul talks about, man and woman, it's worth turning it over. Now, whether, and this is something, you know, perhaps we oughtn't to enter into it, but just, just let's just posit it for a moment thought. It may well be, it may well be that basically looking at it, because man and woman are so made that the woman is dependent on the man, that, when it comes to the issue of authority as such, not understanding, not spiritual stature at all, when it comes to the matter of authority, because of the way that she is made, she is more susceptible in some senses to having authority questions. I don't know. But it is interesting that the serpent tackled Eve, and not Adam. All right? That's all. I... I it's just a, just the thought. It's just that, that that's the order that, that there is in Genesis. Well, now we've almost finished our fifty minutes. I've done about five minutes of my notes, which is a good sign. <laughs> now let's have a look, because this really is what the blackboard is all about. When this has happened, and Adam and Eve have sinned, there is a new situation. Now, whoever said that it was in the fruit or it was in the mind or whichever of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as soon as they had eaten, they had knowledge. I know the angels said they'd become as one of us to know good and evil. That's another issue. I think it's a wider issue as to what that portrays. But in Adam and in Eve, there were new, new feelings now for the first time. They hid themselves behind the trees. Hid themselves. They've never done this before. What everybody does when he sins. What every boy does when he's made a mistake at home. Eh? I remember I had two socks once and uh, I lost one of them when I was out. Well, I spent pretty well all day trying to make one leg look like, or two legs look like one, so that my mother wouldn't know I'd lost one. But I succeeded until nine o'clock at night. You wonder how I managed it, but there you are. This was hiding in one way and another. And we all do this, don't we? If we don't hide... You know, physically, we hide behind somebody else. You say, you did this. Why didn't you speak up? And you say, oh, well, you see, John was there, and he, so we're hiding behind John. And we all do this. Exactly what Adam did. Adam said, it was my wife. She spoke to me. He spoke to the wife. He said, well, what about it? Oh, it was a serpent. And the serpent couldn't pass the buck any further. There was nobody else. So it stopped there. Straight, and God started then and began with the serpent, the woman, and Adam, he came back. But he hid himself. What's more, the next thing he had was fear. thing he'd never had before. Notice that in Genesis chapter 3. I was afraid. And I hid myself. Afraid? Who through fear of death all their lifetime are subject to bondage. That's it. No fear before. Of anything. He got fear now. He, he, was, he was now defiled in his conscience. Just might I ask you then to look at this diagram for a moment, and I'll pick it up in the second address. Adam is now leaning over. Why? Because he's going to die. That's it. He's going to die. Uh, you'll be leaning over in another sense too. I, I'll take that up in the second address. But that, that's where he is. And if you notice that, that's complete. That's it. And that simple diagram, make a careful note of it, that simple diagram is the explanation of every other doctrine on which we are based right throughout Scripture. Notice that. There's no hope in it at all. No way out. 
No way out at all. He's finished. That's it. Without hope, without God in the world, he's dead. Now whatever God plans, reveals afterwards, must relate to that situation. Must relate to it. And it does. And all the promises of God are all related to this situation. We sometimes get the emphasis slightly wrong. Not intentionally, I know, but because material things uh, are the things that set before us and we look at them and therefore we talk about the material. But behind every promise is this. i just speak for one minute more, I think, then the people on the tapes are all right. Uh, that's just mortality. This, uh, this leaning over has got another meaning altogether. But, and now notice, if Adam had been immortal, that is, he'd had something in him from God, then at death, he would either have had to go up or down. By that I mean, he either goes to be with God or he goes somewhere else. This is what happens with the doctrine of heaven and hell. You've got to do something. If a man's immortal, you've got to do something at death. You bring the day of judgment to his death? Got to. But you've got to put him somewhere. You can't put them all in the same place, otherwise there's no point in being good. So you separate them into, into that and that. But the Bible doesn't say that. It makes absolutely clear that that doctrine is wrong. There wasn't an Adam and an Adam, an inside Adam, like that. There wasn't an inside Adam and an outside Adam. Now, lots of people say this. They say, ah, oh, when God said that Adam would die, they didn't mean Adam would die, they meant his body would die, but the real Adam went on living. Well, just have a look what the Bible says. The Bible's dead clear on this. This is my last quotation. Absolutely clear. Genesis chapter 3. I don't think, it's five times in one chapter, I don't think God could have made it clearer. Genesis chapter 3. Verse 19, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, shalt thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Now it's no use saying that's about Adam's body. Not at all. What it says is, unto Adam he said, look, whichever you call Adam, you call the inside, if you're a man who believes in the immortal soul, and you say, well he's speaking to the real Adam, because you've got to ask the question, which sin, that's all this. You're in a host of troubles. It was... This that sinned, why punish that? If it's that that sinned, why punish this? You see all the problems you've got. But God says, unto Adam, he said, and five times, he says in verse 19, to thou return unto the ground. For out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. It couldn't be clearer. It's a clear lie to all that the serpent ever said. But the serpent was saying, look, God's got it wrong, you know. You haven't understood the, the picture at all fully. Just eat, and you'll know and you'll live forever. And God said, no. Dying. Thou shalt die. 